Kia ora from Victoria University of Wellington. Our podcast gives you the chance to catch up with our academics and guest speakers who lead thinking on the big questions facing society. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded. So thank you very much for, for turning out today. Um, so I'm uh, Claire Timpley, I'm a lecturer in political science at Victoria University. I did my PhD at the University of Virginia, so you'll see on the slides that I have the obligatory Thomas Jefferson reference, which when you graduate from the University of Virginia, which was set up by Thomas Jefferson, they make you sign a contract that says any public talk you give, you must include some sort of reference to Thomas Jefferson. So I, I feel that I've done my duty um, already quite early on in the piece. Uh, the three candidates, or well, the three, two presidents and one candidate that I have up on the slide are kind of how I'm trying to structure the talk, which is sort of a Charles Dickens, the ghosts of past, present and future. And so I've got sort of three animating questions to help um, look at the election. And I'm trying to give a little bit of a wide angle lens and think through some of the political science literature and what that tells us um, about what we should expect to see in this election. Um, given that there is at least one unconventional uh, candidate uh, in, in the campaign. And then I think Mark's going to talk a little bit more about the psychology of Trump and his voters. So he's going to focus more on the candidate and I'm focusing more on the kind of the bigger picture. So the three kind of animating questions that I have are, the first is kind of setting this election in context. How unusual is this particular campaign compared with what we've seen happen in the past? The second question is looking at the present and thinking through the implications for the Republican Party rallying around this unconventional candidate. And you may have seen in the news this morning that Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, has just uh, finally and somewhat reluctantly come out and said that he is um, willing to vote for Trump. And then the third question is uh, looking forward to the future and just thinking a little bit about what a Trump versus Clinton matchup might look like. And for those of you who are Bernie Sanders supporters, um, I will very briefly mention him, but I'm more than happy to field questions in the question and answer session about, um, about his candidacy. Uh, so first, in thinking about how unusual this general election has been, I suspect many of you have been following the media coverage, and the media coverage <laughs> in general likes to sensationalize things. And so I feel like one of the dominating narratives has been, we've never seen anything like this before. And so one of the things that I'm wanting to do is think through a little bit what exactly have we maybe not seen before, but also looking at some of the things that we have seen before. So one of the things that is unconventional about Donald Trump as a candidate is that parties tend to select ideologically reliable and electable candidates. And it is not clear at all that Trump is either ideologically reliable or electable. And the other is that no major party candidate has ever won um, without any elected office experience. So he is sort of surprisingly, Hillary Clinton wants to say he's unqualified. He has qualifications in various other domains, but not in the political domain um, in particular. So it's unusual that he hasn't held elected office before. So in terms of him being an unusual candidate and this being a break from the past, Yes, certainly those two key aspects 
suggest that there is a break from the past. But I think what the media has tended to focus on has been the rhetoric that um, he has employed. And so one of the things that I wanted to push back against was the idea that this is a more acrimonious and more awful um, election or campaign than we've ever seen before. And so I'm going to bring up my friend Thomas Jefferson again. Um, so John Adams, uh, Federalists, um, so, so in the contest between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, John Adams Federalist said about Thomas Jefferson that he was a mean-spirited, low-lived fellow, the son of a half-breed Indian squaw sired by a Virginia mulatto father. That's pretty intense rhetoric. And then you look at what Thomas Jefferson's Republicans said back to John Adams. He was a hideous, hermaphrodite character which has neither the force and firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. So we can look back at many past um, US elections and campaigns and find the kind of awful rhetoric that we've seen emerge in this campaign. So I would like to suggest that some of the kind of particular, particularly nasty rhetoric that we've seen coming out and that I'm going to suggest later on that we're more likely to see in the future is not all that unusual in the context of um, American campaigns. One other thing I should note, Thomas Jefferson at the time was vice president to John Adams when they were saying these things about each other. So that sort of, that is unusual in the context of uh, modern politics. Um, so, so in terms of kind of a break from the past or not, I think we can look to the fact that he doesn't have any previous experience in elected office and the fact that he doesn't seem to have the same sort of strong party support and ideological inclinations that you would expect to see come out of the primaries process. In terms of the second kind of animating question, looking to the present, um, given that Trump seems to have been quite unwilling to bend to party norms, what does that mean? Um, what does his candidacy mean for the Republican Party? So um, one of the other kind of dominant themes that we've seen in the media is that there's been this hand-wringing, especially from the Republican side, about the extent to which um, Donald Trump is fracturing the GOP, and that, that it is ultimately going to kind of split into minimally two factions, if not multiple factions, and that this sort of signals the end of the Republican Party as we know it. Um, and as evidence for this, we've looked at some of the elites who have, Paul Ryan, for instance, who up until today was very reluctant to endorse him in any way, uh, the three Bushes, Jeb Bush, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, all saying that they would not vote for him. Mitt Romney, the previous presidential candidate for the Republican Party, saying he would not vote for him. So we've seen the elites sort of pushing back against Trump, which has suggested that there'd be some sort of great division occur when um, Trump uh, got the nomination. But on the other side, so that's sort of the elites and the establishment who seem to be pressing back against Trump up until somewhat recently. But the voters themselves appear to be supporting Trump. Not only have we seen this in the primary contests, but in a recent poll that came out last week, eight in 10 Republican voters want their party's leaders to line up behind Donald Trump. So then the question is why? Um, and, excuse me. <coughs> so, um, though, and, and there are sort of, 
two things that I want to highlight. One is the extent to which Trump actually does um, signal a break from Republican Party ideology as it's manifested over the previous few decades. Um, and then the second is kind of the, the stickiness of a party and kind of how important institutions are in regulating both the behavior of candidates, but also the behavior of elites and voters. Um, so Obama's view <laughs> is that what is happening in this primary is just a distillation of what's been happening inside their party for more than a decade. And he goes on to say that um, the reason that many of their voters are responding is because this is what they've been fed through the messages they've been sending for a long time, that you just make flat assertions that don't comport with the facts, that you just deny the evidence of science, that compromises a betrayal, that the other side isn't simply wrong or we just disagree, we want to take a different approach, but the other side is destroying the country or treasonous. So they can't be surprised when somebody suddenly looks and says, you know what, I can do that even better. I can make stuff up better than that. I can be more outrageous than that. I can insult people even better than that. I can be even more uncivil. So one, so there are both political scientists and um, the current president who have this view that this is entirely unsurprising that a Trump would emerge out of what we've seen happening in recent decades within the Republican Party. And on the kind of point at which this kind of change in rhetoric occurs is often signaled as Newt Gingrich's control of the, um, of the House. And he sort of started this more uh, polarized politics where consensus was seen as uh, a negative thing and as aiding the other party. And so that it's sort of seen, Trump is sort of a manifestation of a trend that was already existing. So in terms of why elites are now rallying behind, starting to rally behind Trump, one of the reasons could be some sort of implicit acknowledgement that to some extent, this is kind of where we're at as a party and we need to kind of deal with it. And also they want to be really cautious about alienating the voters who have brought Trump into the, into the contest and have allowed him to, to win essentially the, the nominating contest. But the other kind of key factor I think is looking at um, polarization within the country. Um, so voters have become less and less willing to cross party lines in presidential elections and you can see that growing polarization here hopefully. Um, before 2000, no Republican nominee had more than 81% of Republican voters immediately after wrapping up their primary. But from 2000 onwards, you can see every single candidate is getting more than 81% of the Republican support behind them. So we can see Republicans saying, the party is more important than the candidate. I'm going to vote Republican because that's what I um, identify with or feel. There's a whole range of... Um, potential reasons why they might want to support the Republican Party. But Trump is very much in line with what the trend that we've seen occurring over the past four election cycles. And then I think these are um, two more illuminating graphs which show um, on the left the median uh, Democratic voter and, the, and on the right the median Republican voter. So in 2004 you can see quite a lot of overlap between the two. But by 2014, and there are a few more um, graphs in between, but I wanted to simplify it out, but you can see this trend 
over time that by 2014, the distance between the median Democrat and median Republican has widened, but also that there's less overlap between the two. And when there's less overlap between the two, it means that there are fewer voters who are going to be those swing voters who are going to say, well, this election I might vote for this candidate because I prefer them over this candidate. So there's more likely to be voting kind of en masse for your party rather than considering the candidates in their particular positions. So this is kind of the institutional strength of the party, which brings the voter along um, with them. So this leads to my final question, which is considering the future. Um, and here, I'm assuming that Clinton will be the nominee, in part because the delegate mass is such that Sanders would have to win something like two thirds of the vote in all remaining primaries to even stand a chance at um, beating Clinton. But as I said earlier, I'm more than happy to take questions on that. But in this particular election, the political science literature suggests that the broader fundamentals favor the GOP. And the reason for this is um, there are kind of three metrics that are brought together to analyze the likelihood of, sorry, the likelihood of a candidate winning or of a party winning. Um, one is the strength of the economy. The second is the incumbent president's approval rating. And the third is how many terms the incumbent party has held the White House. And when you put these three things together, the model kind of spits out a forecast of there's a 60% likelihood that in any normal election cycle, the, that the Republican candidate would win this particular election. But, <laughs> but that model is based on the idea that these are conventional mainstream candidates. Um, and so this time for a change forecasting model suggests that having had two terms of a Democratic president in particular, we're likely to see a Republican um, president in the White House in the next election. But then the question is, are we likely to see such an unconventional <laughs> Republican candidate take the White House? Um, over the past few weeks, we've seen the polls, there's been sort of more media concern about the polls closing and showing that Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are starting to poll similarly in national uh, uh, matchup contests. But we would sort of expect to see that at this point in the cycle anyway. Uh, one is that once the general election happens, you start to see evening out of polls. And one of the reasons is this polarization that we see. Um, the second is that the Democratic Party still hasn't consolidated around the leadership of Clinton, in part because Sanders is still in the picture and making Sanders supporters less likely to, in polls, for instance, say that they would be willing to support Hillary Clinton, even if by the time of the general election they would be willing to support her. And the third is that many of these polls are popular vote polls, which, as a New Zealand audience knows, first, a first-past-the-post electoral system means that the popular vote doesn't necessarily indicate what the actual electoral outcome will be. What's more important is looking at state-by-state -state votes, and in particular swing states and where they're um, likely to fall. One of the key factors that is important to look at in understanding how voters make a decision about who to vote, especially those swing voters, is looking at unfavorability ratings. And so a lot of um, 
media coverage has pointed to Trump's high levels of unfavorability, especially amongst women, Hispanics, Hispanics and African Americans. But I thought this chart is quite illuminating because not only does it show how much of an outlier Trump is, but it also shows that Hillary Clinton's an outlier. She is a particularly unfavorable candidate in the context of um, general elections. And so what we would expect to see in this campaign is a particularly negative campaign. So hopefully not along the lines of Jefferson and Adams kind of rhetoric. <laughs> But we are going to see both Trump and Clinton trying to drive up the unfavorability ratings of the other candidate. And we've already seen that happening with Trump making awful slurs about Bill Clinton's infidelity and what that means about Hillary Clinton's character. Hillary Clinton trying to re-emphasize the comments that he's made about women, Mexicans, Muslims. It's quite a lot of <laughs> uh, comments that she can draw out um, in that respect. And so uh, we would expect to see in this campaign particularly negative um, campaigning tactics used. In terms of, I'll just sort of briefly wrap up so that Mike can take over. Oh, no. <laughs> in terms of the longer term effects, regardless who wins, whether it's, well, one final thing I want to say is that despite kind of the overwhelming, the, well, not overwhelming, Political science research suggesting that the GOP has some advantage going into this election, given the unconventional nature of Trump's um, candidacy. We would probably, we, well, I'm going to use one of my favorite professor, Nigel Roberts' uh, predictive statements. I would be very surprised <laughs> if Donald Trump won, given that he's really alienating some of those key demographics, <coughs> like women, like Hispanics, who Hispanics in particular, who are a growing percentage of the voting population and who have quite a lot of power in determining outcomes, especially in some of those swing states like Florida um, and Arizona even might be in play, um, the selection. So in terms of offering some sort of prediction, uh, the Electoral College map doesn't seem to favour Trump, despite kind of the, the long view of history suggesting that it should favour his um, candidacy. In terms of kind of looking forward to the future, I would um, suggest that whether Trump or Clinton becomes president, it's likely to be a one-term presidency for Clinton, in part because going from three terms to four terms of a Democrat in the White House is unheard of. It would be very, very unlikely that she could continue to um, keep the support of the voters because of that time for a change kind of mentality. And we see that in New Zealand as well, although the next election might <laughs> contest that. But voters tend to kind of get fed up with the same party in power consistently um, or holding one particular office in, in the United States. Um, and Trump, given what we know of him, and Mark can probably uh, talk through some of this in more detail, it would be surprising to see him have a two-term presidency just given the volatility of his candidacy. And um, it would depend a lot on the extent to which he can surround himself with advisors who are able to kind of even out some of the, the policy gaps that we're seeing emerging in his platform. And then one final thing, especially given the news of this morning, that waiting in the wings is sort of Paul Ryan, who was seen as potentially this kind of 
shining white knight who would come into the Republican convention and say, it's all right, you can pick me after all. That's not going to happen, and he has explicitly said it, and I think it would be damaging to the Republican Party, in part because it would be thwarting the voter's choice. Um, but in a way, I suspect he obviously cannot say this, he might prefer a Clinton presidency insofar as in 2020, if he does want to be president, that would almost secure him the presidency and very likely secure it for him for eight years rather than just four. So depending on your kind of short versus long-term view of politics, if you're a Republican, you might want Clinton to win sort of secretly insofar as it's going, it would be very frustrating for her to consolidate Obama's legacy over the next four years, but then you know that you've got this nice chunk of time that the Republicans can do some, some things in the White House. <laughs> that was great. Actually, I just wanted to carry on the conversation after that. There's some really interesting things going on there. Um, thank you very much. I'm a bit horrified at how many people have come out. Um, I would talk for many less, but I'm also concerned there are people in the audience who I know know what they're talking about. <laughs> I'm about to be unmasked. Um, I teach uh, and research psychology in the School of Psychology at Victoria University, and I'm also Associate Dean in the Faculty of Science. And uh, my, I have three primary areas of research and teaching at the moment. The first is political behaviour, which I suppose is relevant to this. Uh, the second is why people hurt themselves deliberately, which is <laughs> probably relevant to this. And the third area of research, which is about why people believe and do weird things, which is definitely relevant to this. <laughs> okay, enough jokes. Um, it's too easy, particularly at a distance, to make fun. This is a matrix of Donald Trump or raw chicken. Um, and there's a variety of these that have sort of gone viral, as my, my son refers to it, in recent times, um, highlighting his distinctive pallor and interesting toupee. Um, but at the same time, I think it's really important that, this, that, that, that I acknowledge that this is not just uh, a spectator sport, it's not just a game. The outcome of this election will actually have implications for pretty much everyone, actually regardless of who actually goes on to win it. And I loved your, I'd be surprised if, uh, if uh, Trump was to win. I will indeed. And in fact, it's one of those weird situations where you could say, I would be surprised if either Trump or Clinton won. <laughs> because of those unfavorability rates. But anyway, on with the show. Um, <coughs> elections are not rational processes. Okay? I should, I should qualify that. For some people, voting is more rational than it is for other people. But it's very unusual to find a single individual who really does what the, the stereotypical information processing model of voting says happens. We go out, we collect all the manifestos, we make, we, we make piles based on the pros and the cons, but we end up actually voting for the person for whom we, we, we think there is on balance going to be the greater good. Um, we've read a lot of things in recent times speculating about the nature of Trump's popularity. Uh, one of the one of the common popular ideas is that it's a reflection of the level of disaffection amongst the kind of people who would perhaps tend towards the Republican Party, but simply haven't trusted the system for a very long time. He's galvanizing a type of Republican that we haven't necessarily seen actually walk into the voting booth and exercise their democratic right. Remember that in an American election, yeah, if we were to get a 50% turnout, that would be, that would be impressive. Okay? And if democracy is based on the principle 
of an informed, active and engaged population, and I'm not sure America actually is one. Because if, coming back to the point about it being a plurality type voting system, we have seen examples in the recent past where a candidate has won a greater percentage of the nationwide vote, but hasn't actually ended up in the White House. They could, and in that situation, I think Gore would have got, what, something like 26% of the nationwide vote? That almost certainly means that nobody gets exactly what they want in that situation. Now, one of the reasons I like these cartoons is, this is uh, those beady little eyes just seem to follow you around the room, is because one of the things which the research literature on political behaviour, and particularly around conspiracy theories associated with politics, suggests is that this anomie, paranoia, and conspiracy orientation uh, are particularly important under some kinds of circumstances and for some types of people. I'll illustrate this here in New Zealand. So, in 2011, I asked 6,000 New Zealanders whether or not they believed that the war in Iraq was about oil and not democracy, whether or not New Zealand was manipulated by big business, whether or not the All Blacks were poisoned before the 1995 World Cup final, whether world governments are hiding evidence of alien visitations to Earth, now, I suppose there are two things to take away from this. Firstly, is that anyone believes some of these things is possibly a really important thing to remember. We tend to stereotype conspiracies as being the province of uh, you know, conspiratorial whack jobs. But if we look at who endorses conspiracy the most, leading up to that particular election, we had the Greens most likely to endorse that the war is about oil and not democracy. Whenever I talk about this, people go, that's not a conspiracy theory. That's true. <laughs> and in fact, if you go by, I mean, the, the, the given, actually, pretty much everyone except for ACT, and they're a funny bunch anyway, said that <laughs> that's likely to be the case. But then we have a big run of New Zealand first. In fact, there's only, what, three of these items that a party supporters other than New Zealand first are likely to endorse uh, the most. What was happening in the lead-up to this election? Well, Winston Peters was claiming a conspiracy against him. There were big forces moving to prevent him from saving us from ourselves. And indeed, actually, there's probably some basis to that. Um, it makes sense in that type of situation that not only was Winston making this claim, but if you support Winston Peters, you've got a couple of uh, decisions you've got to make. I'm voting for Winston, but nobody else seems to be. That either means I'm wrong, I'm an idiot, or there's something else going on. This is a kind of cognitive dissonance type process that can be involved. And research, this stuff, as well as research internationally, suggests that if your party's marginalised, then one of the ways that people can explain that marginalisation without having to fall back on the possibility that they are not a good judge of politics <laughs> is to attribute it to some kind of conspiracy. And again, we've seen this play out in the primary to date. Donald Trump has claimed that the, uh, the system is against him. Unlike Winston Peters, it actually appears to be working, potentially galvanising that portion of the sort of uh, Republican, um, I was going to say underbelly, but that's really unfavourable, the group of potential Republicans who we don't necessarily see actually turning out. It has been a boom time for political psychologists, I have to say. Uh, I am so jealous of my, my friends and colleagues uh, over in the US. Uh, I'm, I'm jealous in some ways and really pleased I'm not there in others. I've got colleagues who have said they have now banned mention of Donald Trump in their political psychology classes. Because everything goes, that's an interesting theory. How does this apply to Donald Trump? But political psychologists have found themselves very popular. Um, and I'll talk very briefly about two of the pieces of research which have come out in recent times. This one here, which was summarised in a bunch of different outlets, is uh, referring to a theory called terror management theory. 
And it's based on a piece of work published in 1973 by a guy called Becker, who pointed out that taxes may be pretty certain, but we can be absolutely confident of the death of our corporeal body, and as a result, we will spend most of our lives cowering in fear of this inevitable outcome. As a result, a group of, uh, well, a group of social and political psychologists, including people like Solomon Sheldon, Jeff Greenberg, Tom Pleszynski, suggested that perhaps if we are constantly dealing with this concern about our corporeal, our bodily safety, our physical security, it's not going to be a very, very functional for us to go out into the world bearing this anxiety all of the time. So what we do is we engage in particular types of beliefs. We, we, we construct a worldview which is designed <coughs> to actually sort of wrap around ourselves and make us feel a little bit safer. And the way that they typically assess this particular theory is by getting a group of people into the room and saying, imagine what it'd be like to be dead. <laughs> I want you for five minutes to write about what it would be like to be dead. In the other room, there's a group of people who look a lot like you, and they've been asked, to write about the difference between neon and light box. Okay, so something, I don't think that's death related. And then you ask them a bunch of questions. There's a great study conducted just before the Bush-Kerry election, which involved going out to the street, rocking up to people and saying, we're going to ask you, it's a political poll, we're going to ask you how favourable you feel towards Kerry and how favourable you feel towards Bush. But half of the people were then told, geez, that 9-11, a lot of people died that day, eh? Oh, now, tell me about Kerry and Bush. When people were reminded about the number of deaths associated with 9-11, Bush's favourability rating increased. And that seems to be because this strand of research suggests that a conservative worldview is a blankie to wrap around ourselves. It involves a bunch of things that give us some certainty that even if we are going to die, that may not be our end. Religion and faith are tied up in this as well. So the same sorts of studies, what would it be like to be dead? You find that people who hold a faith react differently in that type of scenario. I haven't got a slide for it, but one of the other things I came across uh, over the last couple of days is a whole bunch of people doing something that you would never usually see. So I routinely get phone calls from journalists who want me to psychoanalyze people. Okay? <laughs> usually criminals, you know, what was the guy in Porora thinking when you know, he did the siege? And I always have a stock phrase. I say, well, I'm not comfortable doing that for several reasons. Firstly, I'm not competent to do so. Secondly, that kind of thing at a distance is really, really problematic. I don't know anything about this person. The number of people who've been absolutely happy to go to the media and say, Trump is a narcissist, has been really striking. And indeed, he has a number of characteristics that do seem to actually be consistent with narcissistic types of personalities. So narcissism is a pathological constellation of personality traits that revolve around self-orientation. Seeing oneself at the centre of the universe. And I think it doesn't take too many sound bites to appreciate that either Trump might have some of these characteristics or he's presenting himself in a way that is entirely consistent with it. Now, let's talk about some local research. In a lot of my research, I use a couple of explanatory concepts. And I represent them for first-year psychology students who have grown up with The Simpsons. They might not recognise... Uh, Bill Clinton, but they will recognise these characters, to represent two particular types of personality level variables. The first is the authoritarian, and the, uh, this, the authoritarian idea dates back to the early 1900s, but it was most influentially uh, documented in a book called The Authoritarian Personality by Theodore, uh, uh, Theodore uh, Adorno and all of his colleagues at Berkeley. 
And what they argued was that the atrocities committed by the Third Reich were the product of a particularly pathological personality that was associated with the pattern of parenting that people in Germany typically experienced. Now, this was an incredibly influential idea. There was actually a reasonable amount of support for it, but that fell away over the next decade because there were a number of problems both theoretically and in terms of the measurement of the authoritarian personality. But I'll come back in a second to the most recent reincarnation of this. The other personality type or variable that I use is that of the social dominant. And this is a part of, it's, it's the sort of pointy end of a theory called social dominance theory proposed by Jim Sedanius now at Harvard University that basically says most, in fact all post-industrial societies are organised as hierarchies. We have important things, valuable things at the top, we have less important things as we move down at the bottom, we have the least valuable people and groups in our society. And what this research quite reliably shows is that the extent to which you value egalitarianism, which is kind of the opposite of social dominance, is a pretty reliable predictor of your social, political, economic types of attitudes in exactly the direction that you might hypothesise. And I'll come back to this in a second. Um, so the authoritarian has a long track record. The social dominant has been around maybe well, since the mid-1990s. But these days it's very unusual to find a political psychology survey that does not include these two things. Now, that should say Jost, that should say Bob Altemeyer. Bob Altemeyer is a Canadian researcher who, in the late 1970s, took upon himself the job of rejuvenating the authoritarian personality. So he went back to the original book and the subsequent writings he diagnosed the problems associated with it and distilled it down in a way that would allow people to actually use it and address those kinds of criticisms. This is now called right-wing authoritarianism. If we have the opportunity, I'll talk about why it's right-wing authoritarianism very specifically rather than the authoritarian personality. But essentially for old Bob, he says authoritarians value three things. They value authoritarian submission. They think we should do as we're told. They value authoritarian aggression. That is to say, when people do not do as they're told, they should be punished. So in the early research using the, this particular measure, people who were authoritarian tended to say that Nixon was perfectly okay to <coughs> bug uh, his opponent's offices, and more than that, he, um, um, he should, it was okay to punish the radicals and rabble-rousers who protested against him. In New Zealand, for example, Right-wing authoritarians were quite comfortable with the idea of the police wading in with their batons and truncheons during the 1981 Springbok tour protests. And the final component of authoritarianism for Bob is conventionalism, a desire, preference and endorsement of the world as being relatively unchanging, harking back to the good old days when everybody, um, everybody was safe, was happy, women stayed in the kitchen where they belonged, children didn't say anything unless they were asked, and you didn't see people of colour on the streets. Now this is a very, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm making a very strong case here, because as you can see, the types of questions that we, we use to assess authoritarianism are rather strong-worded. Our country desperately needs a mighty leader who will do what is to be done to destroy the radical new ways and sinfulness that are ruining us. It's always better to trust the judgment of the proper authorities in government and religion than listen to noisy rabble-rousers in society who are trying to create doubt in people's minds. Now, as a quick aside, I teach psychological scale development. And I use this as an example of what not to do. 
because usually what you say is make the questions simple. Don't make them double and in fact in some cases triple barrel because you don't know what people are answering. Are they saying that we need a mighty leader? Are they saying that there are they saying that there are radical new ways? Are they saying that it's sinfulness? Normally what I would do is I would take those authoritarian submission, aggression and conventionalism and I would make separate questions for each one. But Bob had a very different strategy. He says in his book, I decided to make questions that would measure all of them at the same time. <laughs> it reminds me a bit of some of the referendum questions that we've had in the past. <laughs> Hard labour, life should mean life. They shouldn't be getting any dessert after dinner, things like that. What are people actually agreeing with? The crazy thing about the authoritarianism scale is it actually works. That is to say, people don't have a problem answering it. And you get what you get is actually a reasonable distribution of answers. That is to say, I look at this and I go, that's a crazy question. But in, particularly amongst some social and political groups, that makes sense. Okay? I am not the target of this particular question. It also reliably predicts behaviour. So, for example, in the United States, people who score high on RWA typically support the Republican Party. So, it seems to work, crazily enough. The social dominance orientation scale, on the other hand, is a lot, is a little bit more anodyne. It doesn't, it, it's much better in terms of scale development. It doesn't have content like uh, rabble rousers or religion. It asks questions like, you know, it's, it's just the way of the world that some groups are better than others. It's okay for some groups to stamp on others to get their way. And again, I look at those questions and go, who would be crazy enough to answer yes to them? But people do answer yes to them. And what we end up with is a little bit of a distribution. New Zealand is not a particularly authoritarian or social dominant culture. Even the most uh, social dominant and authoritarian of our population are actually still you know, only just over the midpoint of the scale, a kind of neutral point. So where's this all going? Well, Bob Altemeyer, amazingly enough, um, got all of the Republican and Democrat um, this is legislators by state and party to complete the authoritarianism scale. I'd love to know the cover story he gave them. <laughs> and what you can see here is that if we look from low authoritarianism to high, we get a clustering. So the Republicans tend to cluster towards the top. Sure, there are some outliers. Connecticut is the least, uh, was the least Republican, uh, was the least authoritarian legislator. The Democrats are a bit more spread out, but by and large, on average, they are more down towards the less authoritarian end. The interesting one is Mississippi, which was you know, both Democrat and the most authoritarian. But there's a very strong pattern here. Now, I've never asked John Key to fill in the authoritarianism scale. Pretty sure he wouldn't do it for a variety of reasons. He has filled in other things for me, but they've been a lot shorter and a lot less controversial than this. I'll show you something in a second, which is my next best guess at how we can get at some of these ideas in relation to Donald Trump. So what I did was to invite my students to imagine that they were Donald Trump, or Barack Obama, or Hitler, or John Key, or John Campbell, because I just wanted to put in someone who wasn't a politician, or Vladimir Putin. And I got them to fill in both the social dominance and the authoritarianism scales. Bob Altemeyer did something similar in his 1981 book. He did it with Hitler. He asked students, imagine that you're Hitler. Fill in the scale. Hitler was quite authoritarian. <laughs> He's also, um, in terms of psychohistory, typically considered to be a classic narcissistic personality as well. And in fact, you will have seen stuff in the media about Trump using very Hitlerian rhetoric 
And we will make Germany, I mean America, strong again. <laughs> so what do we find? Well, what we found, and I'll just orient you to this, the scales up the side in the, uh, the left panel are for authoritarianism. The right is for social dominance. We've organized Campbell, Hitler, Key, Obama, Putin, and Trump. And probably most strikingly, what you can see is that Hitler is still pretty authoritarian. And he's also pretty social dominant. But actually, Putin and Trump are not far behind in terms of authoritarianism. And they slightly reverse in terms of social dominance. That's to say, my students think that Donald Trump is a little bit more social dominant, anti-egalitarian, than he is authoritarian. And actually, that doesn't really surprise me, because I'll show you in a second what we get. Uh, John Key would probably be reasonably comfortable with the fact that he's sitting in the middle of the pack. Obama comes out quite nicely. And even John Campbell. Uh, well, I'd be surprised if people thought that he was really, really mean. Now, why am I not surprised at the, the Trump being a little bit more anti-egalitarian than authoritarian? Well, when you uh, break down the questions, and you can do this, you have to be cunning, into those that primarily measure submission, aggression, or conventionalism, what you find is that Trump is actually uh, lowest on submission. So people don't necessarily think that he thinks people should do as they're told. I'm not surprised by this, because he doesn't do as he's told. He does not come across as a role model for the establishment. In fact, that seems to be the thing that is making him a potentially desirable candidate. He scores quite high on conventionalism, and I think that's kind of interesting, because he hasn't engaged in as much of the traditional Republican rhetoric around faith and religion. He came to direct conflict with Ted Cruz in this particular so I think there's some really interesting things going on. You notice that his profile is a little bit almost the opposite of Putin, which is to say Putin is seen as you know, very, very strong on submission, slightly less concerned about aggression, which is interesting in itself, and a little bit less conventional than is Trump. Let's try and pull it all together in a couple of minutes. This fellow here is John Duckett. He's an emeritus professor of psychology at Auckland University. And he's responsible for what I think of as the grand theory of everything for people like me. He came up with a theory based, he, he did a great job of pulling several things together, doing something no one had ever done, to basically propose that the way that we feel about other groups is actually the product of the combination of one of two processes. One which basically, we'll just focus on the bit that's sort of from the middle onwards, that's characterised by having either a dangerous view of the world or a competitive view of the world. So a dangerous view of the world is the idea that you're, you're constantly in danger, bad stuff's going to happen to you. A competitive jungle, on the other hand, is a dog-eat-dog -dog world where if you don't do it to them, they're going to do it to you first. And if you see the world as a dangerous place, then you're going to be more authoritarian. What do those authorities do? They keep you safe. If you see the world as a competitive jungle, well, you're also seeing it as a hierarchy. And you want your group to be the one that sits at the top of the pile. And this, according to John Duckett, does a pretty good job of predicting how we feel about people who look like us or don't look. I don't think it's a big stretch from there to actually apply it to looking at electoral politics. In fact, I've done this. I've replaced those intergroup attitudes with who did you vote for, for example. I think this is probably supposed to be, is it Rick Perry? I really like this one. With even more Jesus power. <laughs> so I did this in New Zealand. This is exactly that model you've just seen, extent to which people see the world as a dangerous or competitive place, how authoritarian or social dominant they are, to predict where their political issue attitudes lie. Now, I'm using a variety of different scales, but essentially what it shows is that about 50% of the extent to which New Zealanders say, yeah, I support the death penalty, or not. I think that we should have lower taxes for companies, or not. 
Do I think we should have a stronger or weaker health, well, uh, health and welfare system or not? Um, is predicted by the combination of these things. So what would I predict for Donald Trump? And if I was to visit this website, we'd see some of the kinds of quotes that Donald has given us. I'm going to build a wall. Mexicans are rapists. Climate change is a hoax made up by China. Now these seem to me to be reasonably authoritarian, you know, dangerous world types of scenarios. On the other hand, he's going to make America great again. He's going to tax the hell out of China. They don't behave. That's a little bit authoritarian aggression. His whole life is about winning. He doesn't lose often. He almost never loses. So what I would predict, actually, is that this, this model works in New Zealand. It should work in America. And what that really means is, if we go back to that idea about safety and security and hierarchy, is what Donald Trump is doing is he is creating, he is framing the current political dialogue in North America in terms of risks to one's safety, threats to one's livelihood, one's life, and also framing it as a competitive jungle in which, new, uh, in which America is not at the top where it should be, and his aim is to take us back there. Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>